Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we are going to explore the life and career of one of the world's most remarkable physical mediums, a man known as Fraunik Kluski. My guest is Dr. Zofia Weaver, who is on the Council of the Society for Psychical Research in England, and she has served as editor of the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. She is also co-author with the late Mary Rose Barrington and the late Professor Ian Stevenson of the book, A World in a Grain of Sand, which is about a remarkable Polish clairvoyant named Stefan Osiowiecki. Now, she also wrote the book, Other Realities, The Enigma of Fronik Kluski's Mediumship, which will be the subject of today's interview. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Zofia. I'm very happy to be with you again. Thank you, and it's lovely to be here. We're going to be talking about uh, Franek Kluski. Now, I know that's not his real name, and I didn't think I could properly pronounce his actual name in, in Polish, but uh, it's a name he used uh, because he was he didn't really want to be publicly identified as a medium. He certainly did not. Uh, his real name was Teofil Modrzejewski, which is a very respectable name, and one of his concerns was not to sully the name that he was going to leave to his children. And uh, he felt that he would always be accused of cheating. Um, he didn't really make mediumship his career. And uh, so he basically did everything he could to dissociate himself from the subject. And I think one of the most interesting things about it was that one of his occupations was a writer. And you'd think, there you are, there you have material to write bestsellers, to make yourself popular. He never, ever wrote a word about his mediumship experience. As I recall from your book, he was known as a, a writer of, of sort of comedy routines for uh, cabaret performances. Well, he that was part of his career, but it wasn't a cabaret sort of funny, silly, sort of, you know, more sort of slapstick. It was that in that period, there were in Germany and in many European countries, there were what they were called cabarets, which were sort of like political satire interspersed with jokes and songs and basically variety kind of uh, shows. And he became very well known um, or, uh, mainly because of his highly satirical political um, poems and sketches that became very popular, as well as his songs that sort of became hits without the author. Um, so yes, I mean he that that was only a part of his career. Um, he later on he tended to write more 
occasional verses, uh, more patriotic. Since since I wrote the book, as well as reading his earlier poetry, I managed to locate um, quite a lot of other things that now are available online. And they tend to be occasional, very patriotic uh, poems. I've even managed to locate, but not read yet, his article on banking, um, which is, I've, I've got to go to Warsaw, I've got to go to the National Library and get get that volume. But a respectable banking publication uh, has uh, an item by him. So it just shows you the range of interests that he had. And, and he was a banker. He was indeed, yes. He, it was, um, I'm not sure, I think it was probably his main job. Um, and uh, he, that's what he was. And he wrote a, a, a column, a newspaper column on economics. So you couldn't really find a stranger medium than this. Well, I think it's very interesting that uh, his career began as a medium. His career as a medium began around 1918, which is uh, the year that Poland established itself uh, once again after more than a century of having been divided up by Russia, Prussia, and Germany. It became a nation, and uh, uh, right at the founding of the new newly revitalized nation of Poland uh, his career as a medium emerged so patriotism must have been very important uh, in that era oh it was and i mean he interrupted his uh, mediumship his whole career because when in 1920 there was a bolshevik invasion and he went uh, he joined the army as a volunteer so i mean it's all of a piece, but the actual 1918, it just happened that way that he visited a friend um, and there was a sitting there. I don't think he actually went particularly for a sitting, couldn't say, but the medium didn't produce very much, whereas things started happening around my friend Tarfil and, um, and it moved on from there because he became interested and uh, the person who was um, running that show at the time, his name is Sokolovsky, he was a medical person, um, involved, you know, started doing um, experiments with him. In fact, even in the very early days, they started doing paraffin molds, which is seems to have been the standard thing to do with mediumship. Now, you uh, mention in your book uh, that you had been aware of uh, Kluski's mediumship for um, a long time and never thought about writing about it. Uh, and I, I gather you said it would have been pointless. And I suppose the reason being that uh, the phenomenon described by the eyewitnesses were were so... Um, strong and so bizarre and so varied that nobody would believe it anyway. I'm afraid that was my attitude. Um, and it might have, partly as I, I've mentioned Mary Rose Barrington before, I mean, she kept pressing to know more and she kept pressing me to do study days and things. So I always 
dipped into it. But the biggest thing that the thing that really got me writing uh, was reading the book by Filippo Bottazzi on Palladino. I um, mean, this this was republished. I it, I think it, it first came out in the 1900s. Then it came out. It was republished, and everything happens in a lab. You know, um, all her phenomena with strange arms coming out um, out of her side and uh, torsos floating about. It all happened in a lab. And when you take that together with, say, Indridi, Indridasen, and Didi Hume, of course, the great one, suddenly you have a pattern. Once you have a pattern, I don't feel quite as uncomfortable as I did when I started reading about Kluski. Well, you had an introduction to your book by Alan Gold, who is known as uh, a historian of uh, psychical research. And, and he suggests that it's very possible that of all the great physical mediums of the past, and certainly you know, the ones you've just named are uh, n names that would come to anybody's mind, that perhaps Kluski was the strongest medium of all of them. Ah, well, I, I really don't have a ranking for them. Uh, he certainly, I think he is the, the greatest ones that I can, I mean, D.D. Hume was something different. In Dridi Indridasen, in his own way, I mean, same kind of, perhaps on a greater scale uh, in terms of pillars of light appearing all over the place, uh, Kluski's are more chamber-like sort of uh, events, mainly perhaps because he wasn't a medium. He wasn't, you know, it was basically a home circle, uh, apart from the jelly experiments. So they are all much more muted. On the other hand, as I say, they followed him about. It would drive his family mad with all the knocks on the furniture and everything and um, wraps and constant strange events that followed him about and the smells and the electrical equipment failing or right and left and center so um he is uh, yeah I, I think he's probably one of the greatest but then of course as i say he didn't do it professionally which is makes it more believable. On the other hand, we don't know as much as we could if only he had been more open about it. And, and when you say he didn't do it professionally, I think it's important to note, he, to, as far as the records are concerned, he never charged anybody for his services as a medium. Oh, no. I mean, it never... It was basically uh, the the Polish... Society for Psychical Research and the French investigators that basically pushed and pushed and pushed. And since a lot of them were friends, uh, there was, to start with, there was very much an atmosphere of, you know, we've got, we've got a new force here. We've got some new physical phenomenon. Let's investigate. And I think with time, First of all, he had it. It really exhausted him physically as it went on. 
And secondly, I really do think he was uneasy about it as it became more and more mediumistic, which is and um, which is sort of you know he was concerned that it should not become a religious part of a religious cult. His mediumship, as I recall, lasted for just seven years, from, I think, 1918 to 1925. Uh, he di didn't die until, I believe, 43 or 44. So uh, for the last 18 years or so of his life, he simply stopped practicing as a medium. Not quite true, because, uh, say, in 1928, there is a letter from Oste uh, saying that uh, he visited Kluski. He saw in good light uh, paraffin molds forming, and and he was so sorry that Kluski did not continue his uh, mediumship. But he he did. There there is documentation that you know he did carry on with automatic writing, which he always preferred anyway. It was Jelle and Riche who wanted the permanent paranormal object. Uh, so um, they, it's like, I mean, I think Matthew Manning mentions that as well, that, you know, the physical phenomena uh, declined if he was doing something like drawing, you know. So it's the same with the automatic writing. It was, uh, it was a way of getting the gift out without exhausting him so much. And apparently there was some fascinating stuff there. Something I didn't put in the book is, is a, a report by one of the people who experimented with him. And uh, one day Franek visited him at home and they were talking generally and then started talking about automatic writing. And suddenly he, Franek felt like having a seance and started writing, and what comes across, it's like a lot of people, relatives of the person who was, he was sitting with, saying, how is this possible? What's going on? You look a lot older. <laughs> um, and who is this man? And then one of the relatives gives a bit of proof, you know, recalls a conversation that was only known to the other person. So... Okay, it's anecdotal, I know, but it sounds so good. <laughs> it sounds, when you read the account, it sounds so real, you know, as if somebody said, well, what on earth is going on? <laughs> so, yeah, and that, that went on, he went on with the automatic writing until right up to the, uh, to nearly to the war, because, uh, the, again, no confirmation, but somebody who knew him and who was friendly with him and used to have automatic writing sessions with him, said that Kluski went to confession and was told by his priest to stop at once any meddling with things that aren't supposed to be meddled with, and stopped. In Poland, the Catholic Church uh, frowned upon uh, anything having to do with spiritualism. Absolutely, no. I, I mean, as I say, the, and it was very ingrained in both Kluski and the author of the book about Kluski, there are always sort of the implication, you know, it, it's not really, you know, it, it's not really interfering with religion at all. So, and some of the sitters 
uh, sort of were very concerned that, you know, perhaps they were doing something that they shouldn't do. You report that uh, during that seven-year period, there were uh, many, many seances conducted privately in, in Kluski's home, and that uh, the witnesses numbered maybe over 300 people. Yes, yes, indeed, there were plenty of people. He had he had a lot of friends because he had such varied careers. And as I say, they the the, the people themselves they, they were they all signed the reports. You know, there was no secrecy about it. Um, and the person, the, the 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 author of the book on which my book is based. Uh, made sure that everybody agreed that that what they so experienced was uh, reported accurately. So yes, it's very very well reported. Doesn't mean they couldn't have been fooled or hallucinating or whatever. I'm not saying anything, <laughs> but it's difficult not to take their statements seriously. And you also note that there were members of the uh, Polish Society for Psychical Research, which at, in that era was uh, among the, the more active societies in, in Europe, and that these people were well aware of the uh, kinds of uh, fraudulent tricks that spiritualist mediums, and particularly the physical mediums, were known for. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, apart from Jele and Risha, that obviously had experience. The, the, uh, it, there are some lovely ones, some lovely stories in, in the Polish publication where they actually um, discover the medium, how the medium uh, fakes the phenomena. There's, there's one that uh, has, uh, as they tighten the controls, the, the phenomena get less and less until one day, um, they one evening he's sewn into a costume and everything, and when they suddenly turn on the light, which you should never do, of course, um, because it might harm the medium, it turns out he's using his teeth to pull out the ectoplasms. <laughs> so, as I say, they, they did have experience, yes. You mentioned earlier, though, that the phenomena were not limited to the seances, and uh, one of the most interesting uh, examples that you report on apparently occurred in uh, normal daylight in, in which a, uh, a full-bodied uh, apparition or, or phantasm appeared. Uh, I recall it, it was a Turkish man and, and engaged in a lengthy conversation, even smoked a cigarette with a, with a number of witnesses. I know. I know. I, I just do the reporting. I um, But it's not... Uh, it's not the only uh, report of that kind. I mean, for Kluski, yes, it doesn't happen very often. Although I don't know, there are other situations where people see him surrounded by uh, by characters. But I mean, if you look at Mirabelli, and again, who knows if and apparitions generally, you know, they do happen to people. Uh, what the connection might be. I have absolutely no idea. I just, I just report what has been reported, and I hope, I hope one day people will take it seriously enough to actually examine it, that evidence, and and try and find out what it means. In in this particular example, uh, 
as I understand it, the, one of the most interesting things to me is is the the phantasm, the phantom appears, a, a Turkish gentleman, he's engaging in conversation. They see a package of cigarettes on a table, I think maybe about five or six feet away, and uh, offer one to him. And then he extends his arm. Of course, the normal human arm can't reach the cigarettes, but the arm becomes elongated, stretches out five or six feet takes the cigarettes, brings them back, and offers the cigarettes to the other people in the room. I know. I know. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But <sighs> crazy things happen in lucid dreams and in sort of altered states of consciousness. I have no idea. Uh, but I think it's something we ought to be looking at, you know, how how we interact, how the 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 material thing the, the 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 relationship between physical and mental is not perhaps as simple as you might think in fact if you take the idealist philosophy as a starting point well why not you know if everything is the product of the mind you know why not elongated arms is it that we just see what our senses are restricted to seeing and doing. I I have no idea. Now, and if I recall correctly, this particular example of, of the Turkish phantom who appears uh, was witnessed by more than one person. In fact, I think more than two people. Yes, indeed. And they got frightened. They, I mean, they didn't, they weren't normally sort of too worried about seances, but this was the most um, uh, impressive experience they they ever had. I think it's possibly the most impressive experience in your book, but certainly it wasn't the only example of uh, the appearance of some sort of a ghost-like uh, figure. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, the, <laughs> there were so many... Um, and such different kinds. I, you know, not not to mention animals, um, but uh, be, a lot of people recognised relatives. But then people do. But it wasn't. It wasn't like so many spiritualist situations where people recognise the their loved ones, their lost ones. This was, you know, you have a situation where people try to recognise somebody, and the face changes as they watch. Um, so, and some were very sort of nebulous, some were all so lifelike that you could touch them. And, um, in fact, there is one situation where the, a couple of people decide to see how real the phantom is. And without breaking the chain, the circle, they reach out and punch the, the phantom and the phant and the next the phantom sort of moans uh, objects but the next day the medium has a big punch on his uh, on his chest where they hit him uh, where, where they hit the phantom even though the medium was held you know, his hands were held all the time so i have no idea what's going on you do show a few photographs in, in your book. One of them shows the appearance, it seems to be a bird, uh, like a, a wild bird, a large wild bird uh, resting on Kluski's head. 
Yes. Um, now the photographs are. Now let me let me start somewhere else. Let me start by saying that I think Gele may have been a bit of a nuisance with his molds, but he really did provide uh, evidence that you cannot escape. Uh, produced under conditions that are faultless. If it wasn't for that, <clears throat> you'd look at some photographs uh, of Kluski's sit sittings and you'd think, my goodness, what a load of fakes. <laughs> and because, I mean, no problem putting a sort of a stuffed bird on somebody's shoulder, why not? The The... There are two confusing things about the photographs. One is that the, the faking would have been, could have been done so much better. These were not stupid people who were trying for the first time to do something. Fake photographs of, of spirits had been around for ages, so you could really do better than than the stuffed bird or a you know bit of sacking or what have you. And the other thing is, they um, uh, every photograph there were about they took fifteen photographs, two weren't successful. So every photograph taken is described in detail how they take it, what equipment they used, who took it, and how they developed it, and their interpretation of it, and their interpretation of it is that they they took it at the wrong moment. They, by the time they the magnesium lit, the photographs, the the apparitions were dematerializing, and uh, when you read the full accounts, seems a lot of the time the apparitions seem to be using physical material to create themselves. So who knows? I'm, I'm, I don't know how they formed themselves, but the, you have a problem with these photographs that they look so fake and yet anybody with half a brain, and you're talking about people with, you, you know, military experts, professors and whatever, they really could do better. Um, so, and, and again, there is a pattern. When you look around at other photographs of, from other mediums, they also look really weird. So, and and all the photographs uh, were taken a very early period of the sittings uh, because later on, I think lights became so important, and of course, you can't be photographing lights, so uh, they sort of abandoned it and concentrated on the molds and the lights. Let's talk about the molds. The, these molds uh, have been discussed, as you know, in a, uh, an interview we've already released uh, with Leslie Kane, who visited the Institute, uh, the Metapsychique Institute in Paris, where they are kept in, uh, locked in a safe. Uh, they were made by Gilles, who was the president of that institute back in uh, the 1920s. Yes, indeed. And they are they are really uh, amazing objects, not because uh, it is impossible to create uh, molds like that uh, by natural means, but because of the conditions under which they were created. I think there are about three ways of, of 
basically you can just sort of you know puff up your hand uh, and sort of you know by putting your tonic on and sort of make it ink swell and then pull it out you could have materials that uh, dissolve or you can have you can cut things through well while the paraffin is still very soft and subtle you know and you can just um re reseal it for that you need time you need light um and you can't do it sort of under the conditions and where when they were produced so of course the other explanation is he smuggled them in now the thing about that is uh, not to mention the this the stuff that Jele and Riche put in to make sure this was the same paraffin uh, that was on the table but so many accounts and there were hundreds of them are of people seeing light fingers of light uh, dipping into the paraffin and coming out and things splash around and so and you get a warm paraffin mold or in your lap or on your ha- in your hand so that is you know that would involve lots and lots of people uh, basically either being fooled or being accomplices so no i i i really cannot get past the molds um however hard we all try when you combine the laboratory conditions with the eyewitness accounts, uh, it makes some of the uh, skeptical arguments uh, irrelevant. But you bring up the uh, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes dictum, you know, that once you eliminate the impossible, and of course, to a skeptic, uh, these things are impossible. Therefore, no matter how improbable the fraud uh, might seem based on all of the accounts, it must therefore be fraud. If if you assume that this is impossible, then then the only way these molds could have been produced is through some sort of fraud. I'm afraid that it, and it all is where you're starting from. I find <clears throat> um, it's not just the the molds and all the evidence, however impossible. But I also find it impossible with Kluski to reconcile his personality and his whole life with basically playing silly tricks uh, for no gain whatsoever. Now, unless he had some sort of dissociation, dissociative problem, but even then, there isn't the time. I have sort of, you know, looking at his life, there just isn't the time to spend producing fake phenomena, arranging these things, uh, getting accomplices in. And things like, okay, these phantoms, uh, perhaps mm, it might not come as, through as clearly in my book as it does in the original where there's so much more material. but. If you have the same phantom of a, I don't know, I can't, I might get it wrong now, but I think it's a sort of 18th century lady appearing in Warsaw and then appearing in uh, Jelly's lab. Well, you know, you have to bring the accomplices and the, all the props uh, and that's just not on. So uh, 
as I say, there comes a point when you when you look at it and you you just say just think well the world the world is a much stranger place than I thought um, or you just ignore it like I did for so many years. Well, these things are are so bizarre and so rare that uh, it's they're easy to dismiss. And we all have to, you know, go about our business from day to day. And for the most part, it, it seems irrelevant, even if true. So how is it going to affect my life? Exactly. And actually, that was Franek Kluski's attitude as well. He, he had the, these gifts. He didn't make use of them. And he said, life is for living. You know, it's... Okay, he thought, I, and I think that was very much his attitude. He thought he was helping science discover some new human resources. And then he got fed up with producing all these molds and, you know, various phantoms walking about. So he gave it up, uh, especially as it really made him sick. Well, we should talk more about the health effects because many mediums seem to suffer uh, physical illness uh, from from doing that work. It takes a toll on them. Certainly, certainly physical mediumship, very much so. I mean, Hume was a sickly person. Palladino uh, suffered very badly. Um, I'm not, I haven't really, really Indri doesn't died young. Um, so yes, there is a history of that. And I know from what I've read that many mediums have had some, mental mediums as well, had traumas of some kind. Um, so perhaps that's, that's what you need to become a medium, sort of, you know, not be quite fully physically complete. There is a sense that uh, people who have been traumatized in, in one way or another, you could say it uh, sort of blows a, a hole in the, in the membrane that normally separates uh, human beings from uh, supernatural experiences. Well, and there's also the evidence, as far as I know from my reading, it happens to near-death experience uh, people who often develop strange, uh, not necessarily gifts, not if you go around and disturb all the electrical equipment around you, you wouldn't probably be too pleased. But that's what seems to happen. So there seems to be a, a sort of barrier that we have um, that stops us, um, well, stops the, the other stuff wandering about. And let's face it, what, what chaos would arise if you did have phantoms wandering around, and you couldn't say who is real, who isn't. Let me ask you about Gili. He He's the person who reported uh, most of the materializations in the scientific literature. Uh, he was, uh, I b believe, he was a medical doctor. How, how were his reports accepted? Oh, he was uh, very controversial. I, I find his reports, perhaps they are too summary, you know, too summary, sum, he tends to summarize. On the other hand, if you do what I did, which is go through this book on Kluski, 600 pages, 
of, you know, report so-and-so, date so-and-so, and then what happened bit by, you know, it can drive one mad. So I can see why he did that. But then, of course, he was accused of not reporting properly. Um, and uh, I can see that point of view as well, because it sometimes I think, I, I read him and I think, oh, I wish he made it clear who was where at the time or what, you know, what exactly happened. Um, but I also think uh, he was very good experimenter in terms of bringing out the best. I mean, th we, we all know now about the experimenter effect and how some people uh, cause um, phenomena to just, run away um, and some people who uh, make them enhance the situation and I think he must have been very very good at that because he got a lot of I mean you know another famous or perhaps sometimes famous sometimes infamous Polish medium Jan Guzik um, with whom Jele experimented as well and he seemed to get really good results with Guzik uh, but all of Warsaw was laughing at um, not Jele, but Kozik performances because everybody knew he cheated when he didn't, you know, when he didn't have to produce. And that was quite common uh, with mediums. I mean, Palladino was known to cheat if if you gave her an opportunity. Yes, but from what I've read, she, her cheating wasn't that good. Um, when reading Okhorovich, he said, Eddie, you, you could, and, and Carrington, you know, you could tell straight away, you know, if you, you know, if you, if you were an experienced investigator and if, if you told her she would stop because sometimes she would just do it unconsciously. And sometimes, of course, when, I mean, when you think that somebody's making a living out of this, then of course they, the, the, Temptation, uh, the motivation is there, and in fact, Guzik made a very good living out of it. And as I say, uh, it, a, 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 one of his animals turned out to be a sock um, with two fluorescent spots on it. So. And as I say, everybody, everybody enjoyed the spectacle rather than uh, take it that seriously. But in the case of Kluski, I'm under the impression that there, there was never any hint of cheating, was there? No, no, there, ne there never was, no. Um, I, you could say, you could say he could have cheated. There were situations where the controls were not perfect, but then there never was any motivation to produce things. Um, for public uh, consumption, um, if they no, I honestly don't think that was that would have been the motivation. I may be totally wrong. I'm easygoing about things, you know. but I don't think he cheated. He could have cheated over things that were reported outside of seances, uh, like the lights going on and off. Uh, his colleagues laughing that they knew when, when he was at work because uh, the equipment would stop functioning properly. 
or he, they would have to leave the room when he came in after he walked along the sort of, you know, strongly scented, uh, you know, avenue with flowers. So he had something very strange about him and lights, again, seeing lights in his mouth and generally around him, uh, reported in other situations. So, no, I think whatever happened, I don't think that is an adequate explanation that, oh, it was all cheating. No. Well, it's a very interesting uh, case history, a historical example of of something that is very hard to come by today, although not impossible, uh, as we know from Leslie Kane, who uh, says she's witnessing similar phenomenon uh, right now. Now, th the book that you used as the uh, source for your book, uh, as you mentioned, is a lengthy 600-page book published in Polish. So you had to translate it. And uh, I understand that it's a very rare book. If if somebody wanted to uh, read the original uh, book, I, they would have to go, for, there are probably a few libraries that still have it. Well, I think uh, a few still may have it in Poland. Yes, probably they do. I have a copy that's falling apart. Obviously, it's been worked through. But what I did was, uh, by now, I translated all of it, and um, it's the next project. It needs an unbiased expert uh, examination just to see, you know, what opportunities there were for deception and self-deception and uh, any loopholes, and there were many, and how far they would affect. The phenomena. That's our next project: is to produce a commentary on the translate, on the full translation, for researchers to look at and, you know, compare it to other things that I may not be aware of, you know. Um, so that is there for future reference. Zofia Weaver, thank you so much for sharing uh, your investigation of this most fascinating historical episode. I think uh, it's extremely important because I suspect, you know, people with similar talents are going to come along and uh, it will be so helpful for people to have a historical context when that occurs. Well, absolutely. I mean, it happened to me. If if Alan Gold hadn't got me looking at D.D. Hume uh, because of D.D. Hume's Polish connections, I probably would have felt, you know, a bit more dubious, not so well motivated. So, yes, uh, historical. I, 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 I'm all for having continuity, not just sort of jumping in into one event and and making a judgment. Well, Zofia, thank you so much for being with me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And thank you, those of you who are watching, for being with us.